Lord, thank you. If we haven't told you recently, and even if we have, thank you. Thank you for loving us and wanting us and saving us and calling us and equipping us and speaking to us, challenging us and growing us and filling us and overflowing through us and quieting us and speaking in ways that transform us. Thank you for your Holy Spirit that beyond all of the cool esoteric things we could experience, you've given us a helper, another helper, Alon Perakleton, who reminds us of the things you've said, who teaches us all things, who guides and leads us in the truth. You call him the spirit of truth, and so do we. The one who wrote this book. We pray today that you would, that you would minister now Lord, no matter where we're at, if there be anyone who is, not, who is yet to say yes to your gift today, let, let today be the day. For those, Lord, <clears throat> who have said yes, continue to move us forward. <clears throat> that every one of us would find ourselves in that place so deep in you, so rich in you, that all we could do is praise you and live more like you. We've come, Lord, to to interface with you, to grow more like you, to hear from you, to be shaped and molded and equipped. Do that now, we pray. As we take this time, minister, we pray. Speak to every one of us in our heart of hearts, in our ears, Lord, in our minds. Speak fluent us today that we would hear you and understand, that it would land and we would get it. We have so much fun in your word that it would burst open and come alive before each of us today. And Lord, I pray for all the people who are suffering, Lord, who either here or not. Lord, be with them right now. For those that are here, Lord, still our coughs and all the other things we struggle with. Don't let anything distract us from what you want to say to us. And let this day be a day of salvation, a day of encouragement, a day of strengthening, a day of equipping, a day of, of thriving in you. And I thank you for every second you give us here. Bless it now, we pray in Jesus' name. Amen. I would say today as I would any, please don't just believe me. Don't just assume it's true because I say so. Search the scriptures. Let the Bible always have the final say. No. There are so many gifts to thank the Lord for. One of them is cherry juice. I don't know how many of you like cherry juice. I just love it. Anyways. Chapters 1 through 7 of the book of Leviticus speak about the sacrifices. They're teaching the priests how to give proper sacrifices. I want to remind you, the nation Israel has been removed out of Egypt. And they've been removed roughly a year ago. And they will be here for about a month in this book. During that time, God wants to make sure that he, first of all, removes what they think is normal from the world they left because he's got a whole new world to give them. And second, he wants to prepare them to not become a part of the world that he's inserting them into, but rather to make them a world changer. And it's hard to change things if you're exactly the same as everyone else. 
So in this book, he develops, the, in a technical way, how to be different from where you came and how to be different from where you are. Chapters 1 through 7, he develops the sacrifices. Specifically those of the burnt offering, the peace offering, the sin offering, the trespass offering. He wants to develop those and wants to make those clear. Now, as those are developed, and the reason I brought those specific four up is they're brought in through the great deal of all five of them are, really. But they're brought in through this entire book. And so you rely upon those, those burnt offerings, those morning and evening sacrifices of complete surrender. The peace offering, when two people were at enmity with each other and now have become friends and they have a feast together for which then they eat together, of course. The ideal of offering God that of your praise and that of dealing with your sin and your trespasses. Well, all of those things are very clear in all of that. And in the first seven chapters, he wants to sort of lay the ground rules for that. In chapters 8 through 10, now the priesthood gets inaugurated. And as they get inaugurated, we really see that God is not to be played with. You don't make things up as you go along. God had a very specific way he wanted things done, and he's to any means business. So from 8 to 10, we now see the priesthood take those sacrifices and start to do them. In 11 through 15, we see that this issue of being unclean and what could make us unclean. And everything from foods we eat or don't eat, to lifestyle choices, to body liquids, to all kinds of things to keep you, and to, to, to keep the people safe, and to keep church from being a place that becomes an epidemic of anything other than his love. And by the time we get from 11 through 15, we kind of get the idea that we all kind of feel unclean and there's a need to be made clean. And thus he takes us to that apex, chapter 16, which is the book where we read of the Day of Atonement, Yom Kippur, where God covers our sins in blood and thus makes us clean. So there is that prep, that prep, that prep, that prep, unclean, 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 more times there than the rest of the Bible. And then with that, then it finally comes to that climax with, all right, now this is how I make you clean. It's through my blood. That's chapter 16. From chapters 17 through 22, and that's where we are now, we start to see this issue of making God more than Savior. At the Day of Atonement, we see God as the Savior for our sins. Now we start to see him become Lord. So much so, so that in this chapter, chapter 19, and we'll probably get through 19 and 20 today, he will say, I am the Lord 16 times. I think he means business with this. He starts moving us from the idea of Jesus being our Savior to Jesus being our Lord, calling the shots, being our leader, being the, the architect of our reinvention. In this chapter... He starts to move us. Now, 17 and 18, 17, we deal with the blood. That's all about the blood. And if you remember, we need to apply the blood. That's the whole idea here. And see, from 17 through 22, we get to the point where the next apex is going to be 23. And in 23, it will be the feasts, that time of great rejoicing with the Lord. And so from 17 through 22, it's the road to rejoicing. We went from the idea of being unclean and to get to atonement. That's where we were before this. And now that we've gotten to atonement, now we move from atonement to rejoicing. And that's a place, by the way, when many 
people will not get to. Oh, they could say they're saved and they could tell you they're going to heaven, but there's really no rejoicing in them. And what you find is nobody wants to be that. They watch these people and they're like the saintly sour pusses, you know? They're like the biblically bitter. And you watch them and you're like, man, I don't know what church they go to, but that's certainly the one I don't want to go to. If they're all like that. And God wants us to rejoice. So, and so as he begins the idea of moving us from atonement and building upon it now to rejoicing, it starts with dealing with it from the blood. We want to make sure that we apply the blood to our loneliness. We invite Jesus into our loneliness, into our discord, into our rest, into our problems, so that his blood can cover those things to make Jesus everything. Because we'll never rejoice if we're trying to get from the world only what God can give. And my life will never be rejoicing without letting Jesus into all of it. 18 then, remember, was the issue of purity. And the big focus in 18 was this, that the world that you left had a different standard or no standard in comparison, and the world you're going into had a different standard or no standard in comparison. And so don't expect either world to applaud your sexual purity. Don't expect anyone other than God's people, and you would hope God's people would do this, to actually encourage abstinence except for marriage. Don't expect any place in the world to actually encourage you to, to limit your appetites to that which God gives, to that which God provides. And God says, so get over it. Don't try to in any way go onto the internet to try to find out how your sin can be acceptable in the sight of God. There will always be some nut out there who's going to try to tell you how it's okay by, by what we would call twisted scripture. And I've heard someone say, you could take the evidence and if you torture it enough, you can get it to confess anything. So he says, look it, if you really want to be rejoicing, I will never rejoice the way that God has called me to if I allow the world to define me or to define what's proper for my appetites. And let's be honest, we know this. As kids, if dad was the easy one and mom was the hard one, we knew it was stupid to ask mom. We wanted the one who gave us the greater freedom. But understand, that wasn't always good. If dad let you eat all the candy and then you were sick for the next day, you regretted it. And in the same way, we know that if we could ask the Lord or we could ask the world, the world will always be more permissive. But that doesn't make it right. So we apply the blood. We seek to be pure. And then we get to this chapter, chapter 19. Chapter 19 is how we deal with each other. And God takes that very seriously. It's by far the most developed of all of these chapters in this sense that God actually gives us 10 very specific, distinct things. Might I say the 10 commandments of being a good neighbor? Because that's what we're going to see here. 10 things broken up. So needless to say, that's a lot of note-taking. I'm aware of that. The next chapter, and let me just actually get there first, just to develop it. Listen to this clearly. Because by chapter 20, this is how serious God means business. Look at chapter 20, and we'll go back to 19 for a second. Oh, I love that sound. Chapter 20, verse 1 says, the Lord spoke, Then the Lord spoke to Moses again. The Lord keeps doing this. Again, you shall say to the children of Israel, whoever of the children of Israel or of the strangers who dwell in Israel give any of his descendants to Molech, he shall surely be put to death. That's how serious this is. By verse 6, he says, those who turn to mediums and familiar spirits to prostitute himself with them, I'll set my face against them. 
And then God says why in verse 7? Consecrate yourselves and be holy because I, the Lord, your God, I am holy. Verse 9, he who curses his mother and father, put to death. Verse 10, whoever commits adultery with another man's wife, put to death. Whoever lies with his father's wife, verse 11. Verse 12, whoever lies with his daughter-in-law. Verse 13, whoever lies with a male. This is a male laying with a male. Verse 14, whoever marries a woman and her mother. Verse 15, whoever mates with an animal. Verse 17, whoever... I mean, do you, do you realize, like, do you ever read this stuff and you go, does God really have to say this? But let's face it, since the advent of the internet and other things, where all kinds of sickness gets just thrown up on there, let's face it, it's like, yep, God needs to say this stuff today just as much as ever before. Verse 17, whoever takes his sister. Verse 18, who lies with a woman during that time. Verse 19, whoever takes his mother's, your mother's sister, that's your aunt. Your uncle's wife, verse 20. Your brother's wife, verse 21. And then in verse 23 he says, You shall not walk in the statutes of the nation which I'm casting out from before you. For they commit all of these things. Verse 24 it says, I am the Lord your God who separated you from these people. Verse 26 says, You shall be holy to me, for I the Lord am holy, and have separated you from the peoples that you should be mine. Notice in verse 26, he doesn't say you're holy away from them. You're holy to me. Understand, holiness isn't about what you're away from. Holiness is who you cling to. What makes anything holy is God is there and you're clinging to him. That's when God says, take your shoes off, Moses. This is holy ground. It wasn't because it was away from the other ground. It was because God was there and clearly defined and definitively so. Verse 27, to show you God takes this very seriously, he says, a man or woman who is a medium or who has familiar spirits is put to death. So you know how that would work if Harry Potter took place in those days? He would kind of pop out with his little thing, hop out with Hogwarts, and they'd all get stoned with stones, the movie would be over, and that would be the end of the series. That's how serious God takes it. And let me tell you why. Because God really just doesn't like competition. And there's a world out there starving for power and somehow is convinced now that there are some spells you can do and some things you can put together and rub on your face or your head or whatever. And then somehow in all of that, you think you have power. And God is so tired of that. Can you imagine why? Because that keeps people from turning to him. A quick story and we'll get into it now. On our chapter 19 of how to treat each other. So I just chapter 20 just says God means business. That's the idea here, right? Now listen, there was, back when I had first given my life to the Lord, I didn't know much, but I would, was learning a little bit about this beautiful God that we serve. And there was a girl who had given her life to Jesus, and as she had given her life to Jesus, she lived next door to a group of witches, a coven of witches. And I mean, gals that were really happy to grow their hair out long and paint it gray, bleach their faces, and walk around in black robes and try to scare people as they threw sage at them and all that kind of thing. And... Uh, all of that said, um, this girl came home one of these days and she looked at her underneath her doormat where there's normally her spare key because she had lost it at the moment. And there was a pair of her underwear with pepper in them. And she had kind of known that this was the gals next door had broken in, taken a pair of her underwear. I mean, of all things. I mean, you'd think she was part of One Direction or something. And then they put, in, put pepper and put them underneath her doormat. So she called me up all freaked out. She's like, um... Hey, there's um, these gals next door. They took a pair of my underwear and they put pepper in them and they put them under my doormat. Is that dangerous? And I says, if you put them on, yes. <laughs> so, anyways, having said that. God says, no curse against you will land. Do you know what that means? God, that's the simplest truth. I mean, they can st- spin around, do their dance, float on a stick or whatever they want to do. But in the end of it all, if you, unless you get your doctrine from Hollywood, 
the Bible says, greater is he who was in you than he was in the world. Hey, it doesn't say greater is you with him. It says greater is he who was in you. Why would you want to fight it? I mean, they could do all they want. I just turn to the new landlord and say, it's for you. That's the end of the deal. Several years ago, when we were doing a, a, a Sunday morning service, we had been reaching out to a group of people out on the streets in our area. For the most part, we're known for their meth addiction, methamphetamine. And uh, one Sunday morning, a note gets slipped underneath the door. And it's just weird symbols and things, that, you know, something like the Druids had done or something. And, and, and it was right in the middle of a service. Uh, we would find out later that someone was basically trying to slip a curse under the door. Well, nothing happened to any of us. You're probably aware of that. And uh, strangely enough, though, we had um, been reaching out to those people and they were starting to give their life to Christ. We figured that was the reason why. And um, after a while, a couple of those guys started coming in and, and one of the guys even became one of our sound men, a guy named we, we affectionately call Keani. And uh, I would sit with Keani later and I would, you know, not even asking about just telling, asking about the condition of the neighborhood and all that. And he goes, hey, by the way, I have a confession to make. Uh, several years ago, I was so angry at you for what you were doing that I went and slipped a curse under. It was him who actually had slipped the curse under the door who wound up giving his life to Christ. So there you go. Uh, let's get to our text. <laughs> You're going, well, there's too many stories. Are you ready? Yes. Okay, thank you, four of you. <laughs> Ten commandments on being a better neighbor. It's going to be summed up, by the way. And this idea of loving your neighbor as yourself. We'll get that in verse 18, which will be quoted seven times in totality. Six of them then in the New Testament. Three, Matthew 5.43, 19.19, 19, 22.39, Mark 12.31, Romans 13.9, Galatians 5.14, and James 2.8. The motivation, be holy because God is. That's what we see in our first two verses. Look at it with me. Here's our motivation. And the Lord spoke to Moses saying, Speak to all the congregation of the children of Israel and say to them, You shall be holy, for I, the Lord, your God, am holy. That's my motivation. Remember what holy means. Nothing fancy here. I mean, beyond all the other things, in the simplest sense, it means different. Weird. It's really, honestly, what it simply means. Just set apart. Unique. Now, please hear me. God's motivation for you, if you've accepted his gift, is to make you different from the rest of the world. You've heard it before. The sad part is, for a person who may be driven to want to be liked by other people, to fit in with the world around you, you will be fighting the work of God for the rest of your life. Have a nice day. Because God is saying, I want to make you different. And you're like, but I want to be like the rest because they're going to think I'm weird. God says, you are weird. You're saved. And to them, that's weird. You're satisfied. That's weird. You don't have to go run around, sleep around, and get drunk, and get wasted, and go out and find the next hit, and find the next thing, or be popular to be important. You knew that you were important because I died for you on the cross. You're weird. Get over the fact you're weird. Now, I'm not talking about dress in a Hulk costume, put some aluminum foil on your head, and wait for gamma rays. I'm talking about you're weird because the rest of the world is so messed up, and you are not. You were actually on the workbench being made a masterpiece while the rest of the world is heading to destruction. That's weird to them. So get over it. God says, look it, I want you to realize before I even tell you how to treat each other, it's going to be weird, okay? Don't expect to find this in the clubs. Don't expect to find this on TV on the sitcoms. This is supposed to be weird because people aren't supposed to come in church and think it's like everywhere else. 
People are supposed to come in here and go, this is the strangest place I've ever been. Because it's supposed to be like heaven. And you can get hell anywhere. You should get heaven someplace. And if people walk in and don't even know they're in church, then how is it church? When God steps in a room, doesn't it change? Do you remember in Mark 1, Jesus walks into the synagogue and a guy possessed by a demon starts freaking out. Did any of you ever stop to think for a moment, why wasn't he freaking out before that? He was in church. Shouldn't he have been freaking out the moment he walked in? But God wasn't there yet. That's the problem. Have you ever had anyone freak out on you just because you love Jesus? And you're like, I'm so tired of people freaking out on me. Can I just say in love, get over it. I mean, we, we, we play Oprah for each other, but we should be more like a coach. It's like, you know why you got hit? Because you're doing well. And someone out there is targeting for you. That's actually a strange compliment. <laughs> hey, if you had the ball and you were running with it, or kicking it and dribbling it down there and nobody tried to stop you, chances are that's an insult. They're like, he isn't going to do anything with it anyways. <laughs> Think that through. And you're like, oh, the world's so difficult because people give me weird looks. Yeah, you're weird. Get over it. Welcome to the weird club, beloved. I give you permission not to be weird for weirdness sake, but to be weird in Christ. Or can I just say, holy. Be holy because he is. God is not like you. He's not like me. He's not like the world. He's not like Buddha. And he certainly isn't like Muhammad. He's weird. In all of the best ways. And I mean no disrespect. I mean absolute honor. You know, we read the book of Revelation and we freak out over the four living creatures. Because they have eyes all over their head. And they go, that's weird. And you know why? See, I like to say, you know why it's weird? Because you've never seen it before. They probably look at you and go, you look weird. How, come you, how do you look through those two? I mean, think about it. But yet, why don't we look at the one who sits at the throne who emanates all of this light and we go, now that's weird. It's weirder than those guys. Because we've grown accustomed to them. And God says, look it. I want you to be different because I'm different. And, I, and if you want to become like me, then you're going to become weirder to the rest of the world too. Are you aware of that? And this is, as I start telling you how to treat each other, recognize that's going to be weird. Because although we can nod and say, yeah, this is good information. The question is, are we willing to really make it our behavior? And please hear me on this. What God says in the simplest sense is, as if we're opening up the box of this chapter, he says at the front of it, warning, your behavior will either make you more like the world or more like God. But if you're more like God, you're going to become more weird to the world. Is that okay with you before you open this? Because if you're like, no, I just want to be liked by everybody else. God's like, then you might not want to open this chapter. Are you with me on that? How about the rest of you? Are you with me, Zeus? Okay. So here we go. Ten commandments of being a good neighbor. Commandment number one, verse three. Every one of you shall revere his father and mother and keep my Sabbaths. Notice there's an and as if this is all a similar thought. I am the Lord your God. 
Can I say the first thing is, and they'll, they'll wind up in couplets, the, the couplets. The first is it starts with the family, both maternal and church. Notice what he says. I want an honest respect for your parents. Now, let me just say something. Well, what if your parents are unrespectful or disrespectful or ignominious? Can I say, pray for the people and respect the position? Now, if somebody demands that you sin, that's the hill you die on. But let's face it, most of what we try not to do is just what we don't like, not what we think is wrong. We just don't like it. But notice it also says, and keep my Shabbats. That was the day that everyone got together and celebrated God together. Notice it's all in the same sentence. If we're going to be the right loving neighbors, it starts with this. Our base should be tight. Our church family should be one that always has an open door to let more in, but people should want to come in here because this is just cool. I love our family. I love how diverse our family is. I love how funky our family is. And I love that I don't look like most of you and you don't look, most of you don't look like me. And that's just great. (laughs) But if we're going to really be right, we have to have a proper respect. Romans 1.30 tells us on that downward spiral of those who refuse God that people become backbiters, haters of God, violent, proud, boasters, inventors of evil things, and disobedient to parents. In 2 Timothy chapter 3, it tells us in the last days, perilous times will come. Men will be lovers of themselves, lovers of money. Wow, that sounds a lot like today, doesn't it? Boasters. Proud, blasphemers, disobedient to parents, slipped in right in with the rest of them, unthankful and unholy. But let's face it, isn't that the world we live in? Kids sue their parents today for amnesty, not because parents beat them, but because they took away their iPod. But what I find interesting, and please hear me in this, is the Old Testament ended with a promise of the coming Elijah. Right? For which ultimately John the Baptist would come in the spirit of. And he says, and by the way, after Malachi, I want to remind you, there'll be 400 years of silence. So God's like, this is my last statement. When the next revival comes, you know how you're going to know it? I'm going to send somebody in the power and spirit of Elijah. And listen to what it says. This is Malachi 4.6, the last verse in the Old Testament. He will turn the hearts of the fathers to their children and the hearts of the children to their fathers lest I come and strike the earth with a curse. That would be the sign, a symbol of revival. When fathers start loving their children and when children start loving their fathers, don't you think this country is in desperate need of that kind of revival? I'll be honest with you. When I came into this country, one of the first things I recognized, I said, this is a country without a father. And I'm not talking about one big guy just fathers aren't anywhere. And it's like, I, and I'll tell you in the beginning, it was strange because I was with people like Landon, those of you who know this you know, young guy and all this. And I would go to places with Landon and David, the two guys who would come with me. People would say, hey, is that your dad about me? And I would be like, oh, come on, really? Am I that old? And God's like, hey, you prayed to be the father that they weren't having. And now you're upset because I'm making you that. Hey, you know what? We're 10 years away from changing that if we do it here. Do you know what I'm saying? 10 years. Look around. Look around at this room. You're 10 years away from changing that. 
At that point, I'm grandpa in it, okay? You guys, are, your guys are dad in it. We're making that, we're going to make a difference. That's where it starts. Commandment one starts with the family. Your turn. Commandment one. Beautiful. Commandment two, verse two, verse four, sorry. Do not turn to idols, nor make for yourselves molded gods. I'm the Lord your God. No, by the way, notice he has a habit of telling this and all. Look at verse three, how it ended. I'm the Lord your God. Verse four, I'm the Lord your God. Again, 16 times he's going to say this in one manner or another. You know, like if if you're a parent, you understand this. This is what we need to do. And of course, the inevitable question, especially if you have daughters, I've learned, is why? And sooner or later, you don't have time to explain the why, so you simply say, because I'm the dad, that's why. And God says, because I'm the Lord. And God's like, if I explained every reason for this, your brain would explode. You're just going to have to take me on this one. You'll be thankful later. You're taking your children to some place, you know they're going to be blessed. And they're like, why won't you tell me? Why can't we just stay home? I'm like, trust me, you'll want to go today. No, why? Because I'm your dad, let's go. I don't normally talk like that, I just want you to know that. Exodus 20, verse 5, when God gave the Ten Commandments, he told us about those idols. He says, look, don't bow down and serve them, because I, the Lord your God, am a jealous God. Do you realize this was what tipped Oprah off to not wanting to serve our God? It was because she couldn't serve a God that got jealous because she thought that was a character flaw? Please hear me on this. You can't be jealous of something you don't want. I'm not a coffee drinker. If Marcia got a one million pound gift card for Starbucks, I'm not going to weep uncontrollably over that. With all due respect. I'm just not, that's not, but God doesn't get jealous of a Starbucks card. The only thing God gets jealous of is you because it's the only thing he wants. Find another God that wants you like that. And understand, number two, is we have to deal with each other with faithfulness. It starts with the family, but two, we deal with each other with faithfulness. God says, I want your faithfulness. Don't turn to idols. Don't run and make stuff. And by the way, we could say, well, ah, this is an easy one, right? We don't do that. Yeah, you can make anything an idol. You can make your laptop an idol. Let's be honest. You can make your abilities and talents an idol. You can make your car an idol. The most amazing thing is how easily an idol can be stolen, fall over, and break. The problem is, if you have the wrong God, you'll spend your whole life protecting it. If you have the right God, he'll spend his whole time protecting you. You make the choice. So the first one starts with the family. Number two, we deal with each other with faithfulness. Are you with me so far? What's number one? Nice. What's number two? Okay. Number three. Let's look at verses five through eight. And if you offer a sacrifice of peace offering to the Lord, you shall offer it of your own free will. Aren't you thankful God isn't pointing a gun to our head for that? It shall be eaten the same day that you offer it on the next day. And if it remains until the third day, it'll be burned with fire. And if it's eaten on the third day, it's an abomination not to be accepted. Therefore, everyone who eats it shall bear his iniquity because he's profaned the hallowed offering of the Lord. That person shall be cut off from his people. Now, this one you kind of go, now where in the world are you going with this? Now understand, it's quite simple. God does not want you living off of day-old or three-day-old gifts. God is the God of now. He was the God of your past, and he's covered it in blood. He's the God of the future to lead you. But he doesn't want you living off of something great he did years ago. Because what happens then is this life that's supposed to be a movement becomes a monument and then becomes a memorial because somehow in all of it, all you can do is tell me how great God was years ago. God wants to do great things now. Hey, if God was done with you, he would have killed you and taken you home. 
I mean, look at God doesn't make mistakes, including the amount of breaths he's issued you. He knows exactly how many he's issued you, and God's not going to go, oops, three too many. When you breathe your last one, it's your last one, and he's done. So look at Number three is quite simply, and that is now. Just now. Do you know how we deal with each other? We deal with each other now. Guys, like, look at I don't want you taking that sacrifice and then not doing it. Especially, he's dealing with primarily the issue of this peace offering. And please hear me. That peace offering, the idea, remember, two people becoming friends again that were enemies. I just don't want us doing that today and then be like, well, you know, that's kind of like saying to your wife or your husband, well, I said I love you four years ago. I haven't changed my mind. I haven't told you otherwise. People still like to hear it, you know? It's like, what about today? Are you in love with him today? Because he's still in love with you today. Are you still in pursuit today? Because he's still in pursuit today. Are you willing to listen when you pray? Because he's still willing to speak today. And today would be the day. And you know this. Somebody comes and there's a need. And someone comes and you know you should get it right. But you're like, I'll just put it off another day. And God says, deal with it now, sport. Because now it's important. But the world out there, let's face it, we'd say, but the world out there takes their time. God says, of course the world takes their time. Didn't God start this by saying, stop acting like them? Family. What's family to the world? Really? Faithfulness. What's faithfulness to the world? You know what it is? Boring. If someone says, I, I intend on being faithful, they just assume you're ugly and you can't get someone else. Isn't that true? You know, if you hadn't met some girl and she's like, you know, I just want you to know I've been married to the same man, haven't gotten near anybody else, you tend to think, well, she just didn't have any options. Isn't that sad? Because that's the world we live in. A girl says, I'm saving myself from marriage. And can I say hats off to all of you who are doing that? That's the way that God called it. Hey, be faithful. Be faithful before and be faithful after and during. And now, do it now. Now, not in regards to that. Do it in regards to whatever it is that needs to be done of your own free will. Number four is in regards to the needy. So the first two, remember, was family and faithfulness, and now it's the now and needy. Does that make sense? Look at what it says. It says in verse 9, When you reap your harvest, the harvest of your land, you shall not wholly reap the corners of your field, nor shall you gather the gleanings of your harvest. And you shall not glean your vineyard, nor shall you gather every grape of your vineyard, but you shall leave them for the poor and the stranger. And notice again, I am the Lord your God. Now, please hear me in this. This was God's welfare program, and I do love this. Because God's welfare program was never a handout, it was a hand up. Have you noticed that? It wasn't like you just sort of sat there and waited for someone to toss a tuppen in your cup. Here was the deal. We lived off the land. And since we lived off the land, he says, look at first of all, when you farm the land, I don't want you to farm, I don't want you to harvest the corners. The outside corners are going to be the area I want you to leave for other people. Now, aren't you thankful he didn't say the inside center? Because how rough would it be for someone who's a stranger or someone who's a poor person to get through all of the other farmers to get into the center area? He left it the area that wouldn't disturb everyone else. Does that make sense? I mean, there was a dignity in that. And he says, here's the deal. You get one shot, man. You, when you look at your field, the corners are off limits. Let that be for other people. And then, take it and you get one shot. You go through this one time. Gleaning is picking up the rest. 
So if you were doing the wheat, you would take your sheaves, you'd pick it up, scoop it, you'd cut it, you'd tie it up that bundle, you'd throw it in the cart, you'd take the next, you'd cut it, you'd tie up the bundle, you'd throw it in the cart. Anything that gets missed is what the gleaners get. So not only do the poor and the strangers get the corners, they get everything past that harvest. Does that make sense? Now, understand what you might not know at this point is that God already had a girl in mind when he said this. A girl, by the way, who was a foreigner from Moab, who a woman from Bethlehem had gone there with a boy she had married. He died when he was there. She had two boys. They were actually called Machlon and Chilihon, which, or Chilion, which means sick and tired. What mother names her kids sick and tired? And should it surprise you, they both die? Yeah, there you go. They both die. That's the girl that says, you know what? And she, this, finally the mother-in-law, who's lost both of her sons and her husband, knows there's no welfare program at all in Moab. She's going to go back to Bethlehem. The reason she left there, ironically, was there was no bread. Funny, because Bethlehem, Bethlehem means house of bread. So there was no bread in the house of bread, so she left to go to Moab. When she was there, she lost all of her men, her two sons and her husband. But this girl that was her daughter-in-law, she looks in, in this daughter and she goes, go and find someone else, you're beautiful, you're young. And the girl says, no way. I committed to this family because I committed to this family. Where you go, I will go. Where you stay, I will stay. Your God will be my God. Where you die, I'll die. I'll be buried with you. I'm yours. And so with that, they both head back. And they head back to Bethlehem. As they head back to Bethlehem, if you know the story, of course, it's the young girl who says, and you know, mom, I'm going to go and I'm going to go and find some work. And she goes, good, well, here's the rule we have in our land. You can hit the corners and you can follow anyone that's already reaped. So the girl happens to walk into one of the fields and she starts working in the field and the owner of the field's kind of walking. Whoa, who's that? She's sweaty. She's stinky. She's been working all day. She's a foreigner. She is as un marketable as any girl could be in the Jewish culture. But he wants her anyways. And I love to tell Jewish people of that story. Because that's in their own. Because he wanted her when she was dirty, when she was filthy, and she was a foreigner. Ultimately, if you know the story, she has to be redeemed. Her mother gets redeemed. Her Jewish mother-in-law gets redeemed. Though it gets brought into the family. They have a son. And they have a son. And they have a son named David. God knew that even King David was going to come from the lineage of a story that he started all the way back in the book of Leviticus. Isn't that cool how he works that? Now we can go, hey, that's really cool. I love how that ties together. But let's take it deeper than that. How does that work for us? What do you do that, how can you leave the corners of your field untouched and let somebody else handle it? Now, to be honest, I'd love to bring an application, but I think it'd be wiser to let the Holy Spirit just speak to you. Because he says, this is what I want. I want you to allow other people the opportunity to step into the corners of your field and get some dignity that are in need, that are outsiders that could be brought in, that are needy and need some help. So look at if we're going to, and you say, well, this isn't what the world does. God's like, duh. Didn't we start the chapter already with that? He's like, I want you to be different. I want you to be actually welcoming. Okay, you with me in that? So look at the first couple, family and faithfulness. We got that. Then we got the idea of dealing with it now and dealing with the needy. Are you with me so far? We're almost halfway there, which is good. Now it says in command number five, notice it says, starting at 11, you shall not steal. And by the way, a couple of verses if you want. First, 
John 3.17, it says, Whoever has the world's goods sees a brother in need and shuts up his heart to him or from him. How, how does the love of God abide in him? Proverbs 21.13, a very uh, careful, scary verse, when it says, Whoever shuts his ears to the cry of the poor will himself cry and not be heard. Commandment number five, verse 11. You shall not steal nor deal falsely with your brother. You shall not swear by my name falsely, nor shall you profane the name of your God. I am the Lord. You shall not cheat your neighbor nor rob him. The wages of him who hired shall not remain with you all night until morning. Don't you wish that our banks dealt with, it, dealt with us that way? You know, we, if you get paid from America and they're like, we're going to hold this check for like a year just to see how much we can get before we actually transfer. Whatever, you get it. I'm not bitter. You shall not cheat your neighbor, sorry, nor rob him. The wages of him hired shall not remain with you until morning. Verse 14, you shall not curse the deaf. Don't put a stumbling block before the blind. Can you believe God even has to put that in here? Like, don't make fun of a guy who can't hear you. <laughs> or put something in front of a blind person so they'll trip. Unfortunately, you can watch movies that are all about stuff like that today. You can watch blind guys fall off a tarmac, fall off a cliffs, and people laugh with great glee. But rather, you shall fear your God. I'm the Lord. Shall do no one justice and judgment. You shall not be partial to the poor. And by that, the idea of it is to slight them. Nor honor the person of the mighty. In righteousness you shall judge your neighbor. Number five is fairness. We dealt with the family and faithfulness. We dealt with the now and needy. And now we deal with each other with fairness. Because if we're really going to love each other the way God calls, we're fair. We don't steal. We don't lie. We don't try to use God's name to get somewhere with it. We don't put a dove or a fish on our card so that we can rip people off. Listen to this verse. Actually, it's two from Proverbs 26, 18 and 19. Like a madman who throws firebrands, arrows and death is the man who deceives his neighbor and then says, I was only joking. Have you ever had anyone say something and lie to you and then they go, I was just kidding. God says, you know what that's like? That's like a crazy person throwing fire on thatch roofs. That's what it's like. It's a dangerous thing. For the thief, it says in Ephesians 4.28, and here's a quick quiz afterwards, when is a thief not a thief? Listen to this verse. Ephesians 4.28 says, Let him who steals, steal no longer, but rather let him labor, working with his hands what is good, that he may have something to give to him who is in need. When is a thief no longer a thief? When he begins to give. Not just when he stops stealing. But when he starts to work and give where he would have taken. So, family. What's the second? Faithfulness. Now and then. The needy. Five is fairness. Beautiful. We're halfway there. Number six. Look at verse 16. And boy, this is one that should... And by the way, I hope you're, when you're reading this with me, you're doing what I'm doing. Which is, God, if there's any of these areas that don't reconcile with my life... Will you change them, please? Verse 16 says, You shall not go about as a talebearer among your people. You shall not take a stand against the life of your neighbor. I am the Lord. You shall not hate your brother in your heart. You shall surely rebuke your neighbor and not bear sin because of him. You shall not take vengeance nor bear any grudge against the children of your people. But you shall 
love your neighbor as yourself. I am the Lord. That's the verse that Jesus quotes. It comes right from here. When they say, what is the greatest commandment that Jeffrey read? What is the greatest commandment? And Jesus says, well, the first commandment is to love the Lord with all your heart, mind, soul, and the strength. And the second is like it, to love your neighbor as yourself. That comes right from here. The first comes from Deuteronomy 6. Now, please hear me on this. Did you notice, by the way, that what God calls us to do (coughs) is to forgive? So, notice, by the way, so when we start talking about this, we deal with people with fairness and we deal with people with forgiveness. But he shows what happens if you don't forgive. Let me tell you what, let me tell you what happens if you don't forgive. First of all, you could become a talebearer. One of the ways you can tell someone hasn't forgiven is how quick they are to talk bad about that person to other people. I've heard it said that gossip is what you would never say in front of the person and flattery is something you would only say in front of the person. He says, there's no room in the body of Christ for talebearers. Did you hear about? Oh, what about I heard? Well, they're nasty. They're rotten. Well, even if it's something that has happened to you. Matthew 18 says, if your brother sins against you, go to him alone. Do you realize how strange that is? The easiest thing to do is to call for prayer. Someone else. Oh, Charlene, I just need to call you about Shirley. I'm not sure what to do, but I'm looking for prayer. Let me tell you what Shirley said and what she did. Mm Mm-hmm. Oh, Shirley. Oh, she did. She did what? And let me tell you, and this was her tone. Mm. And she texted me with three exclamation points. Mm. By the time we're done, it's like, but now, if we're going to be wise, let me just challenge you. If we're going to do what we're supposed to do, someone wants to start throwing that at you, stop them and say, have you spoken to them yet? Because if not, you are dragging me into sin. You realize that? I'm not, I want to be a party to your sin. I don't know what they did to you. I don't want to know what they did to you. I'll tell you what I want to know. I want to know why you're calling me to try to make me sin with you in it. So I'm going to love you enough to demonstrate. So since you're sinning against me at this moment, I'm going to go to you directly right now. Now, your turn. Go to them directly right now. And the Bible will say in Matthew 18, if the person isn't repentant, to grab another person as a witness. But don't grab someone that's not part of the issue. Chances are, if the person does it as a lifestyle, they've offended someone else, and they'll be, God will bring another person in with the word. Both of us, we're going to go up to you now and deal with it. But let me just say something. As Christians, we are called to love each other in our weird personalities and approach sin. We could be quick to approach someone because of their personality and go, you offend me. Why? Because you're offensive. Well, what? What did I do? I don't know. You're just... And it's like, what good does that do? You ever realize God may be bringing that person in your life so that they could help you? You prayed for patience and God brought them in your life and you wondered how that happened. <laughs> but when someone sins, that's what we deal with. Do you see what I'm saying? So you're like, I wish... I don't care whether you sin. I just wish God would change you because you're irritating me. God's like, um... Can you imagine if God did that with us? Aren't you thankful he doesn't? So we could... Run around and be a talebearer. Or we could just hate him. Verse 17, which Jesus would say is the seed of murder. You can hate him. But you know what he says? Rebuke him. You go, rebuke? God really wants me to do that? And God says, yeah, actually, what I want you to do is go to him. Because if you don't go to him, 
you'll just hate him and talk about him to other people. And when that happens in the church and someone comes in and hears someone talking about Shirley or hears someone talking about whoever or whatever, let's face it, who wants to be a part of that? Do you ever go to, you ever go to a, somebody else's family reunion and see them backstabbing each other and just think, oh, I'm so thankful I'm not part of this family? This is a family reunion. We get one every Sunday and often throughout the week as well. People should be able to look and go, man, I wish I was part of that family. Go, well, you could be. My dad adopts. Okay. Let's see how many of these you get so far. What's number one? Nice. Number two? Good. Number three? Now. Number four? Needy. Wow. Number five? Number six? Forgiveness. That was the one we just covered. Okay, we're almost done. Now look at number seven. And this one may, listen, verse 19. You shall keep my statutes. That should be easy to understand. You shall not let your livestock breed with another kind. So God doesn't want like any like sheeples, you know, that kind of thing, whatever. You know, goat lambs. You shall not sow your field with mixed seed, nor shall your garment... No shall a garment with mixed linen and wool come upon you. Which clearly tells us that God was not into disco because it was all about polyester. No, anyways. Um, <coughs> in the simplest sense, let's just say it this way. God does not want you to mix in with the style of diet and dress of the world. That's the way they did it. Now, you know why they did it? Because one thing was cheaper than another. You, I bet you could buy food like that. You can buy clothes like that. Certain things where it's sort of like, it's supposed to be 100% something, and then you look and it says 100% taste like right? You ever see those? You know, it's got a 100% fruit juice taste. Uh, it's like you're going to pull up a little teaspoon of it somewhere and go, oh, this part doesn't taste like the fruit juice. You know, but you know, in the end of it all, you kind of know when the thing's the real deal and somehow when it's kind of the diluted thing. And that's what you have in both of these cases. These things are diluted. What happens is you run a, a wheat field, for instance, with barley, and then you sow the whole thing and you sell to someone as wheat because it's a more expensive product. And what you're doing is you're ripping people off. But what you're doing in the simplest sense is you are compromising in regards to your diet or dress like the world. Now let me see how that plays out. In the simplest sense, diet. Well, the world can go out and smack down a whole bunch of Guinness before the night's over and that's what happens. So we'll just smack down a couple. We're not going to totally dilute ourselves, but, but we'll be enough like the world to enjoy its freedoms. Well, the world, okay, so they wear a bra and a see-through thing on the outside. I won't necessarily do that, but I'll, well, I won't do any of that, right? But, you know, you get the idea. You know, <laughs> don't even get that mental image or you're going to need counseling. But, but you know, like, I, 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 don't, I, I could kind of hike up my skirt a little bit, or I could kind of do this, or whatever. And what happens is, it's like, we, we, what we do is we kind of play that not-that-bad game. Can I just say, there shouldn't be a not-that-bad game played with us at all. I mean, if all we're doing is kind of going not-that-bad, that means we're not good at all. Because we're still on the bad side of it to see whether we're as bad as something else versus, I want to be better, not as bad. Go, well, you know, my clothes aren't, as revealing as as what a naked person walking down the street you could always find somebody that you're better off than the guy who's barfing on the side of the street i don't think as much as him it's only a little coke it's only a little porn it's only a little not that bad commandment seven deal with each other with commitment i'm sorry with this with commitment and conviction. And we're going to see that here. Here it's commitment. I want to commit to being different. 
I want to commit to God's style. I want to commit to God's diet. Does that make sense? I don't want to commit to looking like the world. I want to commit to being holy. So when the world says, and here's how we can play it doctrinally. Come on, Muhammad, Buddha, Jesus, they're all kind of the same person. And we want to be like, yeah, yeah. We know that's not right. But we don't have the guts to be able to say, no, which one died for you? Which one's God? Which one raised the dead, healed the sick, cleansed the lepers? Only one. Don't tell me they're all the same. This guy kills everyone. This guy raised the dead. How are they the same person? This was the son of God. This was the son of an elephant. How is that the same person? How does that work? Hey, I'm not trying to diss. I'm just trying to be honest with you. Someone looks and goes, oh, a couple aspirin, a couple cyanide pills. What's the difference? You're like, I love you. Don't take those. That's poison. Should we all the more with eternity be concerned? Look at verses 20 to 25. Whoever lies carnally with a woman who is betrothed to a man as a concubine, and who has not yet all been redeemed nor given her freedom, well, they shall scourge him, but they shall not be put to death because she wasn't free. He shall bring his trespass offering to the Lord at the door of the tabernacle of meeting, a ram as a trespass offering. The priest shall make atonement for him with a ram of the trespass offering before the Lord for his sin which he's committed. And the sin which he's committed shall be forgiven him. When you come into the land and have planted all kinds of trees for food, then you shall not count their fruit as circum, uh, you shall count it as uncircumcised. Three years will be considered uncircumcised to you. You shall not, it shall not be eaten. But in the fourth year, all of its fruit shall be holy, a praise to the Lord. And in the fifth year, you may eat of its fruit and may yield for its increase. I am the Lord your God. Now understand, God wants commitment. God wants us to commit. And the idea of it here is, notice, commit to the land. He goes, don't come into this thing, plant some trees, try to get something off of it, and then leave. And by the way, I love this. Because I look at this and I think, I don't know if you know this, but can I just say it for the record? We plan on living and dying here. Do you know that? We don't plan on popping in here, starting a church, and running off to somewhere else. Hey, we'll do whatever God tells us. But our plan, unless God changes it, is to live and die here. We want to commit. And that's important. And in a world where there isn't commitment... We are going to be funky weird for being committed. The idea of this is, you know why with, this, with this, this concubine thing, it's like what the guy should have done is he should have gotten her freedom. That's what the guy should have done. He wouldn't have been punished if he had gotten her freedom. Then the guy could have married her in the first place. But instead he'd rather just shack up with her. And for that he should be beaten. That's what he says here. Could you imagine ladies? By the way, if she had a choice, she'd get beaten too. A guy says, hey, let's shack up. And you're like, hold on, there's someone I want you to see. The whipper. Yeah, I mean, that's the way it should be. (laughs) Could you imagine how much more faithfulness there would be and commitment if you knew that all of a sudden he wound up with her and they both went to the blocks for it? But it's like, we'll live together for 40 years and be, well, we're partners. We're not really married. We're partners. The only people that seem like they want to be married are gay people today. How's that work? I'm not trying to sound like an old cranky guy. I just do that naturally. But get get the idea on this. We deal with each other with commitment. Where's the commitment? God talks about those kind of people that he loves to stand before me. He says, the guy who swears to his own hurt. Do you know what that means? When he says he's going to do something, he does it. Man, we'll find men like that. Men that are committed. And I mean men, women too, ladies. Who are like, you know what? Even if it hurts, I said I'm going to do this. I'm going to be a man or a woman of my word. I'm going to do it. 
And I'm not going to just do it until I feel like I've completed the fulfillment required. I'm going to do it right. Because I'm serving the Lord. Could you imagine what would happen? And we don't even want to feel... Hey, we don't have a membership here because I'd rather you commit out of your own free will than out of some form of form. Hey, I'm not dissing someone else who has it. But look at whatever it is, when it comes to relationships and to a family, we should commit. Hey, it doesn't have to be here, but Commit. Commit somewhere where you could grow. Commit somewhere where you could love on people so that you know the same people to love on them. And so they can watch you grow. I mean, you keep bouncing around sooner or later. No one will know how you've grown because no one's known you for more than a week. Hey, you stick around here. You're going to watch me grow. That will be fun for both of us, for which my wife will applaud as well. So we deal with each other with commitment. Deal? By the way, any of you feel like you can do that naturally? I can't. I stink at commitment. But my God showed commitment beyond any of us. All he had to do was sin once. This was over. Come down from the cross. Slap that guy that said, you really the son of God? Come down from the cross. Be thankful I wasn't Jesus. I would have come down from the cross. I would have slapped his head like a bowling ball and I got back out. Now how you like me now? You know? And the father would have said, we're done. Next. <laughs> God forgive us all. He showed commitment. It says, For the joy set before him, he endured the cross, scorning its shame. Beloved, you and I are the joy set before him. That's why he endured the cross. Because when the guy said, Come down from the cross, he saw your face. And because he saw your face, he wasn't coming down. Because if he did, he wouldn't have had you. That's how much he loves you. Don't talk about commitment without bringing Jesus into it because we don't have it. That for better, for worse, sounds lovely. But if we were honest, it's like for better, enriches, good days. 26 through 29, or 8. You shall not eat anything with blood, nor practice divination or soothsaying. God doesn't want you playing with that. And this is one that gets a little hot topic here. Verse 27, you shall not shave the sides of your head, nor disfigure the edges of your beard. You shall not make any cuttings in the flesh for the dead, nor tattoo any marks on you. Uh-oh. I am the Lord. And then he says, don't prostitute your daughter. And you go, huh? The cause her to be a holiday. Does anyone really have to say this? Yes. If you go to South America, you'll know how serious this is. If you go to India, you'll know how serious this is. Lest the land fall into harlotry, and the land become full of wickedness. Listen. The world that they left in Egypt and the world they were entering in Canaan had a lot of things in common. Babylon, the root of their religions. And in both cases, there was this entanglement to the dead. So much so that when someone died that they felt important, people sought to attach themselves in any way they possibly could to that person. In some cultures, they would cut the dead person, cut themselves, and become like blood brothers. You don't even know how that works. Which is weird, because some of those people died from diseases, from which then, of course, other people got the moment that they attached themselves to it. They marked themselves. Don't think this doesn't happen today. There are parts of India that if a man dies, his wife is supposed to throw herself on the funeral pyre. That's the stack of wood. When they put the man on, they set it on fire to burn him. And she's supposed to throw herself live on that to die with him. And marks for it. So please understand, this idea 
of attaching yourself to the dead, all of this stuff revolves around that. You could go to Spain or Italy or France and find the same. You could find dead people that have been somehow incarcerated, stuck into something, and then after that, people pray to that person because they're trying to attach themselves or wear a medal or whatever it be because of Saint so-and-so. And you are aware of the fact that if you've accepted the gift of Jesus Christ, you're a saint. That's what the Bible says. All a saint is, is a set-apart one. And you were set-apart the moment you said yes. It's that simple. It would be weirder to pray to someone dead. They can't hear you anyways. You, be, you know, it's just as weird to imagine someone says, Oh, Saint Juan, and you kneel before Juan. Juan, if he had any sense about him, would say, Get up. I'm only a man. I don't want to be like the rest of those dead people from this. Get up. Please hear me in that. There's a lot of things people do to attach themselves to the dead. There's a whole worship of ancestors in Asia today where they will do through many different types of practices seek to get a hold of their ancestors. But notice how it started. Blood, divination, and soothsaying. That's how this part started. All with the idea of contacting the dead. So the rest of it follows in, in due suit. Shaving the sides of your head, disfiguring the edges of your beard, cutting your flesh, and tattooing marks. Literally cutting marks. Or marking marks in you. We're all to attach you to the dead. Paul even speaks about something crazy that people were doing, and that was getting baptized for the dead. The Mormon church still does that. Wasn't a new idea. Please hear me on this. If you're the kind that wants to get a tattoo, and you're concerned about this, if God tells you, hey, here it is, don't do it, then don't do it because God said that to you as a conviction. If you're getting a tattoo because somehow you want to get a tattoo to connect with the dead, definitely don't do it because that's exactly what he's saying here. You want to disfigure your face? You want to cut your face because of that so somehow you can connect with the dead? Do you remember when Elijah went with the prophets of Baal? You remember that? And how they cut themselves until the blood gushed out? They were trying to contact Baal through the dead. God says, I don't want you to do that. I want you, you serve a living God. You don't need to abuse yourself for that purpose. There are places, by the way, outside of Peru where people cut off the fingertips because of their children that they lose or whatever the case is. Hey, now look at, I know someone who's a dear man who loves Jesus and lost one of his daughters in a very tragic, horrible accident. Has tattooed her initials and just remembers that. I wouldn't tell you for a moment that was sin. You're going to have to deal with the Lord on this. I mean, there are people, I, this is what I've learned. People who get tattoos before they get saved tend not to get more tattoos after. People who don't get tattooed beforehand sometimes want to get tattoos afterwards to say, and they'll have Jesus or whatever to remind them. Hey, you know, if you have something to remind you that you belong to Jesus, I, you know, good, good on you. Hey, Leah, I'll be, at least I'll be happy with the fact you're willing to be bold. <coughs> Nobody tattoos the big guy on their, I mean, it's going to be Jesus or not, you know, I mean, you're going to be bold. All of this was down to the point of whether or not you're actually willing to have a conviction about what people do with the dead. You know, I've told my family, when I die, cremate me and flush me down the toilet. I'm like, what about this, what this flesh is worth anyways? They're like, really? Do you want to do that? I'm like, call it a burial at sea. I'm not going to know the difference. I'm not going to be there. So, so listen, we deal with people with conviction. And don't be afraid to have conviction when you're dealing with a world out there that tells you you're stupid for having them. They have them too. It's amazing when a vegetarian tells you that you're ridiculous because you have a conviction. 
they have a conviction too. I wouldn't diss theirs. No, I, I'm not a vegetarian. But it's like, you know what? We, you and I won't go and sit at a Brazilian barbecue. I, re- I recognize that. It's okay. A person that's way into recycling, hey, good on you. But don't tell me it's wrong to have convictions because you clearly have some yourself. And when it comes to the area of the dead, we deal with a God that death is half the story. And we want to make sure that we're clear on that. We want to make sure that we see, look at, I don't need to contact someone there. I'm not going to try to go find my great aunt somewhere who died, a Hopi Indian somewhere or whatever the case is. Because in the end of it all, I serve a living God who has all eternity in his hands. And I'm going to deal with it from that conviction. And everything comes from that conviction. <clears throat> okay. My last two and we're down to closing this up. Which is good. Because if I give you any more, your brains are going to explode. Commandment number nine is with honor. Verse 30 says, keep my Sabbaths, revere my sanctuary. I'm the Lord. 31, give no regard to mediums or familiar spirits. Don't seek after them. That's the third time he said it in this. To be defiled by them, I'm the Lord your God. Look at this one. You shall rise before the gray-headed. Notice he doesn't say gray-haired. Those of you who are losing hair, respect that. (laughs) You shall rise before the gray-headed. And honor the presence of an old man and fear your God. I'm the Lord. God doesn't expect the world driven by economics to respect old people. They pull from the system. But from the side of eternity, somebody who's walked with the Lord, someone who's older, should have some wisdom under that belt. And they're to be respected. The church should be one place where an older person can come in and be loved by young people. Let me say that again. The church should be the one place where an older person should walk in and be loved by younger people. Don't you think? And don't you think the world would scratch their heads if they saw that here? Today, older people get so concerned about it, they're trying to be younger people just so that they won't feel obsolete. That that was a pretty heavy thought. (laughs) Verse 33 says, And if a stranger dwells within your land, don't mistreat them. A stranger who dwells with you shall be born to you as one, shall be as one born among you. Could you imagine? And you shall love him as yourself, for you because you were strangers once in the land of Egypt. I'm the Lord your God. Please understand. I don't care where you came from. Give your life to Jesus, and let's all be family. I think it's that simple. Whether you came from the streets or whether you came from a penthouse in Chelsea, whether you came from Afghanistan or whether you came from a cathedral. The bottom line is Jesus saves every one of us. And whether you're a direct descendant of Muhammad or whether you are somebody that, you know, you're a gram. In the end of it all, my God saves everyone and every person on the planet needs Jesus Christ. He died for us. He rose again. And we honor. And what honor means in the simplest sense is that you show that people are important. That's all it means. You ascribe a high value. I would hate for us to value someone because of anything other than Jesus. And that's going to be weird. Get over it. So we deal with honor. And the last, we deal with honesty. It says then in verse 36 or 35, shall do no injustice in judgment, in measurement, length, weight, or volume. You shall have honest scales, honest weights, and honest ephah, and honest hand. Those are measurements. I am the Lord, your God, who brought you out of the land of Egypt. Therefore, you shall observe my statutes and all my judgments and perform them, because I am the Lord. 
God actually says that dishonest scales are an abomination to him in Proverbs 11.1. One. You know what that means? Remember, everything back in those days was, um, was done by a scale. So everything had an equilibrium. So what happened is you had sort of, you know, someone says, I want to buy a, you know, I want to buy 12 ounces of something. So what would happen is you took a 12 ounce weight, put it on one side, you weighed out the other side, and then when it weighed out, you were fine. The problem is that what would happen is if you didn't like someone, you took out a, like a smaller weight that said 12 ounces on it. So they got less. And everybody can do that. You can jip people in all kinds of ways. But let me tell you about a couple you might overlook. You can jip people with your time. You can jip people with your attention. I've learned when someone thing is important, you single task. Does that make sense? I mean, you don't kind of do one thing, tap somebody else on the shoulder, text and type with your toes. I mean, when somebody's having a serious moment, don't rob them. Love them enough to give them single attention. Because if you're actually differing a weight, that's why we get called hypocrites. It's actually a wrong term. It isn't that we really are hypocrites in that. What we're having is a double standard. What that means is we tell someone else that's the way they should do it because it's wrong, but it's okay for us because somehow what? We're in the church. That's okay. That's a different weight, don't you think? And God says, that's an abomination to me. Hey, the bottom line is divorce is wrong. No, I'm not talking about your past. I'm talking about your present. We don't play that game here. From the, we stand on marriage here. We stand on it the way God defined it, and we stand on it as God says, which is for life. If you want to get married here, expect me to say, I expect this to be for the rest of your lives. If you want, we can kill you. I'm just kidding. Anyway, you get there. So, because we really, we, we really want to stand on We want to stand on God's word. So we don't have to worry about fighting about other things and definitions of marriage because we stand on the entirety of it. That's the way that works. We have no double standard. Sexual immorality is still sexual immorality. Hey, you know, it's like, it, it does, doesn't matter whether you're the pastor or a parishioner or whatever you want to call yourself or whatever. In the end of it all, our person that's just out there. Sexual sin, sexual sin. But God does hold a higher accountability for those who say they're his because we should be satisfied in him. We shouldn't be running off trying to get wasted. We shouldn't be running off trying to club. We shouldn't be running off trying to go from relationship to relationship because somehow God's supposed to have filled every one of those spaces in our heart so that everything we enter into now is out of a state of overflow, not out of a state of need. He would hold us much more accountable than the rest of the world. So we're not going to be one of those kind of places where it's like, well, he's sleeping with her, but because he's a good tenor, we keep him in the choir. That doesn't play here. Now, believe me, I've been a, I've been a part of a few of those. Where it's like, I don't care if we sound like beat keys. Y'all gone. Get right. Because that's serious. And don't expect to be a part of anything without character because that's what God calls us to. Okay, let's see how well you do. Ready? Number one, family, not bad. Number two, faithfulness. That's how we want to deal with each other. Number three, now. Number four, needy. We deal with the needy. We don't run from them, we run to them. We should be the only ones on the planet that do that. Number five, sorry? Fairness, beautiful. Number six, forgiveness, instead of chatting and talking. Okay, number seven, commitment. Number eight, Conviction. We deal with commitment and conviction. Number nine, with honor. And number ten, honesty. Any of you kind of feel like you did perfect on this list? Well, we're going to pray. We'll pray for Sister Shirley. Did you hear about Shirley, Charlene? Did you? It is written. Yeah. You did well in writing them down on the notes. Okay. Oh, I love you. Yeah, yeah. So, all right. 
Well, let's do this. But let me say as we go to prayer, and here we are about to take communion. Isn't that beautiful? Right on time. I just want to say how much of a beautiful thing it is that we all can take to the Lord and say, Lord, we need you to change us. Isn't it nice that we all can be, including Shirley, I know she knows, uh, (laughs) that we can all be in the same place, which is that we're all in a place where we need God to change us. We want God to change us. And it starts with this, accepting the gift of Jesus Christ. Have you done that? Who died on the cross because of his commitment to us? Who rose again to give us a new life? The new life? As we pray, I'm going to give you the opportunity to accept that gift. You don't have to understand much, just this. God wants to wash you clean, forgive you of your sins, make you brand new. Are you willing to accept that gift? If you have, welcome to the chopping block. Welcome to the workbench where God is making you a masterpiece. If you haven't, I'd love to give you that opportunity. And then we're going to take communion. Would you pray with me? Lord, we have before us, it was a pretty comprehensive list. We're aware of that. Fairly exhausting. There's a lot of stuff on there. And Lord, I just thank you that you gave us so much here that I know there's some of us, including myself, I look and go, well, there's a lot of work you have to do. And I want to thank you, Lord, that I can throw myself before the God of mercy who doesn't give me what I deserve, but rather gives me what I don't. And so, Lord, I want to thank you for your great grace. That grace, Lord, that here and this year, I throw myself before. And I don't bank on it in the sense of wanting to live a disobedient life, but rather, I just entrust myself to you and say, Lord, please have me. Take me completely, Lord, and do this in my life. Give me, Lord, I thank you. I thank you. Thank you. Thank you so much for both of my families. My biological family that you've given, Lord, my maternal family, but also, Lord, my church family. I am so thankful for both. You've blessed me. You've spoiled me. And I thank you. You've overwhelmed me with that. But I want to be even a better dad and a greater husband and a wonder and a better pastor and a better Christian. Lord, I want to be more like you. More faithful. More ready in every given moment, Lord, to do what you call. And Lord, more open to the needs of the needy. Lord, and I know I won't see every need because you haven't called me to meet every one of them. But the ones you show me, Lord, make me available. Make me ready for that. Lord, make me quick to forgive. Lord, make me somebody who, Lord, when I, when I look at somebody, Lord, I, I don't ever want to hold any form of grudge or weirdness, Lord, or any of that. And Lord, in that I just pray, Lord, that you just help us all here even now to recognize your forgiveness. That you issued at great cost, at the price of your own son. And Lord, I just pray that as we consider your forgiveness, Lord, that we would cry out to you and say, Lord, never allow me to be somebody who would in any way diss another person and unforgive them when you yourself, Lord, showed us such forgiveness. I pray that we would be fair with each other. I pray, Lord, that we would be truly committed to each other. We deal with each other with great commitment and great conviction. And Lord, make us a church that honors people. A church, Lord, that truly honors people. Shows them that they're important. And deals with each other with honesty. Fair scales. Wrong is wrong, no matter where. 
And here now as we stand before your throne of grace, if there be anyone who has not accepted the gift of Jesus Christ. We know we've gone long, but here we are at the cross. And there is a God who wants to forgive you and cleanse you of all of your sins and make you his own. But he wants your permission. And even at the beginning of this, it said that if you're going to offer, your offering has to be of a free will. Are you willing today to accept the gift of Jesus? And if so, I have a prayer to pray. I want you to listen. And at the end, I ask you to give a confident, resounding amen. And what you're saying is, I agree. Let this prayer be my prayer. So be it in my life. And here it is. God, I'm a sinner. I won't lie to you. I've done wrong. I've thought wrong. I've felt wrong. And you as a righteous judge have a right to punish all wrong. But I believe that you sent Jesus to die on the cross so that all my sins could be punished and yet I could be forgiven. And as Jesus died, my punishment was fulfilled. And just like your scripture promised, not only was he buried, but three days later he rose again. So I say yes to Jesus, his gift at the cross to confess him as my savior, that you would atone for me with his blood. And then in the surrender of my heart and life and will to you, I call Jesus to be my Lord as well. So have me now, make me yours as I surrender to you in Jesus' name. And if you agree with that prayer today, so that it would be yours, simply say, Amen.